This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years. I started the Self Work podcast five years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological or emotional issues. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who might be a little stymied by a diagnosis or some kind of problem you're having either individually or in your relationship, but also to a third group of you. To those of you who think, oh, I think that therapy stuff is kind of weird, I sure wouldn't go, but you're curious enough or sadly unhappy enough to listen to a podcast like Self Work. Welcome to all of you. When someone reaches out to me via email about a new book, I never quite know how I'm going to feel about it. I mean, publicists will call a book bestselling and I check it out and it's doing okay, but it's not a bestseller. But I get a sense sometimes that I really want to talk to someone. And Talia Marone-Schatz is one of those people. Who is she? She's an author, consultant, speaker, researcher. She's a psychologist. And she's an internationally acclaimed expert in medical decision-making. She's talked to all kinds of drug companies, and she's researched at Princeton and as Wharton lecturer. What has happened with her perspective from her research and all her work within the field She's got a worldview that sees health and healthcare as a joint venture, meaning patients, doctors, and the medical institutions should all take a part in ensuring that really good information is not only conveyed, but understood. Choice is a part of it, and interactions are handled in a way that really optimizes your health. I got tickled at one of the reviews. Daniel Kahneman, who is a Nobel laureate, said, people who expect to stay healthy forever need not read this wonderful book. (laughs) The rest of us should. With a fine combination of humor, compassion, and vast knowledge, the author offers clear and useful guidance for the hardest decisions of life. Talia was in Israel when she and I talked. She was on vacation there, and I just found her to be so refreshing, and she is funny. You may not think it's funny to talk about medical decision-making, but somehow she gets down to real common-sense stuff, and I think you'll find her three questions that you may not be asking your medical provider, but are the most important questions to ask. Before we get to Talia's interview, of course, we want to hear from BetterHelp. You have a choice as far as where you seek therapy as well, and BetterHelp wants to help you. They offer quality online therapy or they use video, text, whatever you're comfortable with, because they know how important good mental health is, and so do I. So let's hear from BetterHelp. BetterHelp has been a sponsor of Self Work for at least a year or more, and I'm so glad to have them on board. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's actual professional therapy online. And as I've done much more virtual work during the pandemic, I've seen firsthand how effective and convenient virtual work is. When you contact BetterHelp, you'll get a response from a licensed therapist in as little as 48 hours, and they'll make sure you feel your therapist is a wonderful match for you. I, of course, tried this, and I was impressed with the therapist they presented to me as well as what the therapist themselves offered. And BetterHelp and I want 2022 to be your most 
mentally healthy year ever. So just visit betterhelp.com slash self-work and you'll get a special offer to get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash self-work. Hope you'll give it a try, especially getting 2022 off to a great start. So let's hear now from Talia Maroon-Schatz. I am so pleased to introduce you to her. I learned a lot from her book. I read it cover to cover like I almost always do. And I think you'll find her and her work so helpful. Talia, I very much appreciate you being here. When I got your book, I thought, okay, well, I would love to interview this woman. And then as I read it, I was more and more convinced that, yes, I mean, you have such an important voice, such an important message to say to all of us. And I'm, I'm very honored to, to be talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Sure. So the name of your book is Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Of course. So we make decisions all the time, and some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are not great, and sometimes it doesn't matter a lot. I mean, let's let's start with sandwiches. I think a sandwich is, is a good place to start, and, and I'll tell you why. So how do we choose? I love the fact that you just use really <laughs> commonplace examples, you know. You know, I write about how hard it is to understand medical information. So that would be so irresponsible of me to write about it in a complicated way. So sandwiches, right? You want to, you're hungry. You want to choose, you, you, want to, you want to grab a sandwich. What does it mean to grab? It means to do something quickly without standing there for 30 minutes thinking about the glycemic value of every component and how much saturated fat, because then your friends will never go out to lunch with you. <laughs> so you pick, you, know, you, you pick something out. You pick something out. Why? Because you kind of like it. So there's an emotional component because you don't want to have tuna because you're not going to smell friendly and whatever. So you, you just have one reason for choosing. And Ideally, it's also emotional. So if someone says a turkey sandwich and says mama's uh, turkey sandwich or aunt whatever's turkey sandwich, that's also emotional and you like it and you grab it. And that's how we usually decide. Mm-hmm. And it's not the end of the world if mama's turkey sandwich isn't that great, right? Because you paid, what, $7 and you could eat something else or, you know, you just suck it up and you choose something else tomorrow. But what happens with health and other important choices? So there we think, we're not going to grab a cancer treatment, right? We're going to really think about it. We're going to really weigh in all the evidence, all the pros and all the cons. But what I'm proposing is that this is a lot harder than it seems because the information is so complicated, because sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes um, whoever sells us healthcare is selling us something. They want us to buy something. They want us to go for the more expensive option. Medicine is about persuasion frequently. Well, as everything else, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, a doctor will want you to go for the more expensive option or for the one that brings them more money, them personally or the medical center. And that's, that's not how I like to view the world. 
but that is part of what's out there. And we need to, to realize that. So we need to realize that when we're persuaded or easily persuaded by anything, be that fertility treatment, cancer treatment, medication, anything, and we're not asking the right questions, then maybe we're not making the best choices for ourselves. One thread that's throughout the book, and you really trace it quite well, is the changing relationships between patients and doctors. And I think it fits in with what you're saying, because do you just do whatever the doctor tells you to do, mm-hmm. or do you actually have a collaboration with them, or you know, how much of the decision-making should be up to you? I think that is such a vital topic. And I'm 67 years old, so I grew up at the time where if they took your temperature, you know, they didn't tell you what it was. <laughs> You know, and so you'd say, well, what is it? Oh, I can't tell you that, you know. (laughs) You wouldn't understand anyway. You wouldn't understand, you know, and blood pressure. Oh, my gosh. You know, that's just far too complex. So, you know, in this day and age, when my husband just had cataract surgery and Mm -hmm. they put this eye with big arrow pointing down, you know, they're they're willing to say, you know, sometimes we we need help, too. So I I just think it's a very interesting burgeoning kind of um, relationship between physicians and patients and could you talk about that how that has all changed so much absolutely so i love your example and you don't look 67 at all you're a gorgeous 67 (laughs) if that's okay to say you know this day and age everything is so politically correct Uh, but that's just the truth um so you you're describing a reality that didn't happen such a long time ago and it's incredibly paternalistic it is where the doctor is there and they're big and you're small and they know and you don't and they decide and who are you exactly you're just the patient it's not is this your job to decide do you have any input in the matter the answer is no so here is what you're going to do And things have changed in many ways. So things have changed because we have a lot more information at our fingertips. You can take your own temperature. You can take your own blood pressure and your blood sugar level repeatedly. So you can basically arrive at the doctors with much more information. You can also Google. I mean, your husband had cataract surgery. You guys could Google cataract surgery and understand what it entails. You didn't have to come to the doctor completely ignorant of what was going to happen or what it meant. So there's a shift. There's a power shift over there. There's a knowledge shift over there as well. There's a liability shift because doctors are sometimes actually freaked out of telling us what to do because then they would be liable. So sometimes you want the doctor to tell you what to do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they don't want to. Because they're afraid that then you would come and say, well, I did this because you told me to, therefore it's your fault. So you're accountable, doctor, not me. What about the doctors that really resent Doc, you talking about Dr. Google. You know, I mm-hmm. read this on Google. I mean, I've certainly had doctors kind of roll their eyes when I say something like that. And yeah. luckily, I, I use the language that is appropriate. And they begin to look at me a little differently that I'm not just somebody who's copied down something from WebMD, but I've tried to understand it. And so, you know, that's one thing. But I, you know, I've certainly had doctors go, oh, Dr. Google, yeah. You know, I have to say, I don't envy doctors. No. Really. They have a very, very difficult job. They dedicate so much time to studying and they dedicate so much time to working. It cannot be easy physically, emotionally, intellectually. And they have very little time to sit with us. And in we waltz 
with information, which may or may not be true. I mean, if you look up something on WebMD, at least that's credible. If you look on something on Wacko MD <laughs> that I just invented, you know, like my hairdresser, she thinks lemons cure cancer. Oh, right. So amazing, right? Just boom, solution right there. So if someone shows up with that kind of information, it's incredibly hard for the doctor to deal with. So doctors don't know right off the bat what kind of information we're bringing. Is it at all credible? And assuming it's credible, is it relevant? Because maybe we've looked something up, which is relevant for people with a different type of diabetes or a different blood pressure. Some, some, there's a magical treatment, but we have high blood pressure. So we can't do that. Oh, okay. So basically all the information we read is irrelevant because we did not know. Exactly. So a, there's a fine balance there. I mean, we are supposed to be healthcare consumers. We're supposed to be very savvy and, and responsible. And we really try, but there are limitations for our knowledge. And we have to acknowledge that as well. Well, you, you say that sometimes you tell your students you have lazy minds. And <laughs> you say before they go off running to the dean, I make sure they say, you know, I have a lazy mind too. And I, I thought that was really um, that sort of confirmation bias and all of that was very important information. Thank you. I agree. I mean, it's imp- it's an important thing to say. The funny thing is I, I used to say that at Wharton. I used to teach at Wharton and I taught MBAs. They don't like to be told they're lazy. <laughs> and the un- undergrads, even less, and they're, they work even harder than the MBAs. But the truth is that to be good, to have a good business mind, you have to understand how people think. And our minds are lazy, which is great, because if you go back to the sandwich, if your mind is working very hard to choosing a sandwich, when are you going to get your work done? (laughs) By the time you chose your sandwich and your soda, it's like you're fired. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, 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 it's kind of good that we can choose quickly, but it is kind of good because isn't, it isn't always good. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just really hard. So we say, well, what sounds good? What sounds nice? Does the doctor look nice? What does the office look like? We look for hints and sure. cues and things that will help us make a fast decision, which we hope is also a good decision. But it's really, it, it is really not that simple. So it's hard making healthcare decisions, choices. It's not an easy task. So sometimes I think maybe you miss the days when the doctor wouldn't tell you what your temperature was because then we could just be passive. We didn't have to worry about it. It wasn't on us to choose and decide and try to decipher the information. But I want, I want to throw something else into the mix. Sure. And it's a realization and it came to me. It wasn't immediate at all. Um, so we speak about us as healthcare consumers and we speak about our doctors as the people who are in dialogue with us and who take care of us. But actually, all of this takes place within a system. There's a healthcare system out there and it determines how long the doctor will spend with you right. or with me. Um, it also determines what kind of materials you're going to get. Are you going to get any materials before, say, that cataract surgery? Um, are they going to tell you you're going to arrive at the clinic? This is what's going to happen. You'll need to stay for two hours after surgery for supervision. Here are your eye drops. And that's like what happened to me with my um laser surgery, LASIK surgery, because they wanted to be gorgeous and not wear glasses. And they did a really good job at explaining everything at a very simple level, which I so appreciated. Sure. So that's the, the system where the doctor works and they need to be mindful 
in helping us because it also helps their doctor. It truly helps everyone. I thought also it was interesting, you were talking about that part of your research has been looking at thank you notes from Mm -hmm. patients to doctors and that they don't usually say, oh, I so appreciated you used 10 stitches instead of seven or seven stitches instead of 10. You say your nurse called me the day after and asked me how I was doing or you remembered my name or you know, whatever it happened to be, or you made a joke and made me laugh, or, you know, it's just kind of a, it's much more of that ancillary, that additional uh, surrounding information. Mm -hmm. People don't talk necessarily about the techniques used and that kind of thing. It's more the attitudes and the treatment and the ambiance and that kind of thing. Exactly. And it also makes a lot of sense because do we really know that the doctor used seven stitches instead of 10? Do we, can we evaluate their stitching technique? Probably not. I mean, my son had surgery when he was very small and I saw them remove the, the stitches afterwards. I, I was, I, I don't know what got into me, but I had to see and I looked, I thought, well, you know, I don't know if they would get a really good grade in, uh, in, uh, in school for this kind of stitching. But usually we just don't know. We're not sure. We're unaware. We don't have the the tools and the knowledge to evaluate. So it was fascinating for me. I love seeing these thank you notes. A lot of times doctor, doctors frame them and they will say things sometimes in rhymes like, you explained me everything and you answered all my questions. You are, your speech never stings, whatever. I'm making up ridiculous <laughs> rhymes as I go along. But it's, it is Always all about your attitude, your explanations, your patience, how kind you were. It is always about that. And I think that's for two reasons. So one of them is because it's just emotional and it resonates with us. And the other is we can appreciate that. We are aware of the fact that someone is making eye contact or not. When you walk in, they say, hmm, you know, and they, and they frown and look at their, at their screen. You're not going to like that. Or if they say, Oh, Dr. Rutherford, what can I do for you today? Mm-hmm. That's different. I have a lot of, of medical doctors. Over the years, I've had a lot of medical doctors as patients, and I know how hard it is to be who they are and to fulfill that role in our society. And one time when my son had a collapsed lung and he was going to have to have surgery, he was only 18, one of the physicians would walk in. So he was talking to this 18-year-old boy mm-hmm. and uh, his father who can't follow medical terminology and not and here I was in the room at least somewhat familiar with it and I had to confront the doctor because he would never look at me and I finally went out and said you know my heart was beating really fast and I was nervous and I said listen you know you're not including me in the conversation and I know my son is 18 and so he's legally a man and an adult yeah but he can't make this decision on his own. He will rely on me. And so you need to look at me in the eyes. And much to my amazement, Talia, he said, you know, I've been told that before and I'm sorry. Wow. And it was like, whoa. And he, I mean, yes, I was irritated with him at first, mm-hmm. but he grew in my estimation after that so much. Now, I did have a fellow uh, MD tell me that it had gotten around the doctor's lounge that, you know, I was hard to get along with and to stay clear of me. <laughs> but, that's that's a, such a great example on yeah, so many levels, so many levels. I really, you know, and I was, I don't know, I just thought he did a great job of just saying, you know, you're right. And, and, I, and he didn't do it anymore. I think you also did a great job. 
because you approached the doctor. And I love how you described that your heart was beating. Oh, yeah. So, you, you know, you're not, you're not a kid. Mm-mm. You're a doctor. You're self-assured. You know who you are. You know your way around medical terms. And you are standing there with your heart beating. That yeah, is very important. In fact, I of remember course. looking at him and saying, we're on the same team and you, yeah, I want you to treat me like we are. You know, Absolutely. But just think how hard it was for you to approach the doctor because you were afraid for your son. And I think also because there is a power difference and you don't want to aggravate the doctor who's about to take care of your kid's lung. You really do not. Mm-mm. So it is hard. So let's imagine you are not who you are. You're someone perhaps younger, perhaps less educated, perhaps with less of sense of this is who I am in the world, less of a solid sense of that. That makes it 10 times harder to approach the doctor and to say what you said, which you said very eloquently and very politely. That's incredibly hard. What I've heard from my doc slash patients is that during the pandemic, this particular dynamic has been extremely difficult because people are dealing with sometimes mythical information, sometimes whatever, but just the the whole procedural aspect of it has been difficult and people are arguing with doctors and questioning their expertise and it's just really been tough. It's, in, it's incredibly hard. I could not agree with you more. You know, I write about physician burnout and I wrote about it. I started writing about it before the pandemic. It was already there before the pandemic. And the truth is it's incredibly hard on physicians, but it also goes around to patients. So the more we belittle our physicians and argue with them and just are disrespectful to them, the less nicely they're going to treat us, the more likely they are to just retire to say, you know, I've had enough of that. I don't need this. I just don't need this. So this is this is not great to say the least. I think it, it is hurting everyone because when you have a good relationship with your doctor, even if it is in passing, when they feel you appreciate them and they feel they connected with you and they get that smile from you or that kind word from you, it nourishes them as well. So it can be a vicious circle of burnout and disrespect or it can be a nurturing circle. What is that um, quote from Maya Angelou? She says something like, you, you won't be remembered for what you did for people, but how you made them feel. <laughs> so I really think maybe that's sort of apt here. So one of the things that you also talk a lot about is one, the, the absence of any kind of training in medical school about actual listing. You quote the sacred number of 108, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. Actually, uh, Dr. Caroline Leaf, who's a neuropsychologist, uses that number too. If I remember what you said in the book correctly, it takes a patient 103 seconds, 108 seconds or something like that to actually get out what they want to get out initially. And a doctor will tend to quit listening at 11 seconds. Yes. Yes. So 108 seconds, a a patient will go uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. That is under two minutes. I mean, it's a lot of seconds, but it is not a lot of minutes. Mm -hmm. And I, it was puzzling for me that it was 108 seconds and not another number because that, that is a sacred number. 
in many Oriental cultures, there's a yoga practice of doing 108 sun salutations. That's a lot of sun salutations. You <laughs> end up being very, very sweaty, very yeah. sweaty indeed. With great abs. <laughs> with, with great everything. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but you need to do all of the 108. So if patients need to talk for 108 seconds, maybe the medical system needs to take that into account. And maybe doctors can also listen because I think if the patient doesn't say everything they wanted to say, it's going to come back and bite the interaction. They're, they're going to miss out on saying they also have another concern or they also have been experiencing another symptom. And that's just shame of jumping into conclusions and yes you are right it's been it's it's a major source of frustration that on one hand many people are dealing with studying medical interactions and i wrote about shared decision making so many people are trying to promote that physicians um psychologists like me other professionals as well and that's on one hand. On the other hand, it is not a major part of uh, the medical curriculum. And then you have the institutional aspects. So like I said, if you, if you give a doctor seven minutes to speak with the patients, to be with the patient, to open up their EHR, to see what, what happened in the last visit, what this is all about, what the patient has been uh, suffering from, what sort of medication they're on. It, it takes me a long time to describe that. Just imagine having to read through that sure, sure. and to understand all of that. So you have that. And you also have the culture. You know, Dr. Robert Pearl talks about that a lot. He has a much more authoritative voice. I mean, the culture, it sounds. <laughs> and, and, and that's true. So let's assume you're a budding physician and you really care and you've read my book, your life depends on it, what you can do to make better choices about your health. You absolutely loved it and you understand that you need to connect with your patients. It's not some lovey-dovey add-on. It's essential. It's crucial for medical treatment because if the patient is connected with their doctor, they're much more likely to adhere to the regime. Right. There are medical benefits to this connection. Please, it's pivotal. So you understand all that and you come into the department at the hospital, but nobody acts like that or few people act like that or the senior people don't act like that. So you learn this is the real world. This isn't, you know, some book you've read. This is how we do things around here. It's chop, chop, and we don't have time and we don't want to connect and whatever. And that's and that's very hard. So it's it's an uphill battle. I think we have a lot of uphill battles. The one with the information, the one with the kind of negotiating the information that the patient brings in. And it seems like we're sort of stuck, but I don't think so. I think we're making huge progress. It's just that everything is moving very quickly and change needs time to happen. So I'm sure like thirty years down the road, things will be a lot different than they are now. There was a part of the book that I did get necessarily confused by, but uh, since it's been a little time since I've read the book and I was reading mm-hmm. my notes, I'm now I'm looking at it and I'm a little confused about health literacy. Mm-hmm. And I've got something that I have one repair, two ask me three, and three ask me what matters. Mm-hmm. And so I can't quite since, like I say, this was a few weeks ago that I actually read the book. I can't quite remember that part. Can you explain health literacy? In my sleep. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. 
<laughs> so health literacy is a, is a great concept. It's connected to literacy. Literacy is the ability to read. Health literacy is the ability to read and understand and use health and medical information. So it goes toward us understanding the words, the concepts. It also goes toward having people be critical about the health information they receive. So, for example, with the lemon cures cancer example, if you have high health literacy, you will question that. You will say, well, really? So where did you read that? Did you see a medical report on that? Or did you hear from the greengrocer who was selling you lemons? Where did this all come from? And you would be able to have a, I don't want to say an intelligent negotiate. You, you would be able to have an, an effective mm-hmm. conversation with your doctor if you have high health literacy. So, Literacy, as I said, and health literacy, they are things that the person either has or doesn't have or has them at a low level, medium level, high level. What if we don't necessarily have high health literacy? What then can we do? So I offered a number of strategies that can be used. The first two can be used both by the patient and the physician and the last one by the patient. And I'll, and I'll explain. So the first one is repair. Repair just means asking clarification questions. Gotcha. Just making sure that you know what the person is talking about. So suppose your doctor says, uh, this is for your hypertension. And you say, what is hypertension? You've never heard that one before. And they say, it's high blood pressure. We say, oh, it's the same thing. So you're verifying, you're asking. And the doctor says, yes, it's another way to say blood pressure. Gotcha. Now you're in the conversation or the example I gave from the article that described repair was someone says, the doctor says, well, let's talk about the side effects. And maybe you're on two medications. You don't know what they're talking about. And you ask for for this, you say no. The doctor says no for the other thing. Okay. So that's basically asking. Follow through and that kind of thing. Yes. When When there's confusion, ask. Exactly. And don't ever be shy because Mm-hmm. Asking doesn't make you stupid. Asking helps you learn. Yeah. So that's repair. What Ask did you me say three. The bashful cannot learn. That's what you said. Va- yes, exactly. It's a, it's it's uh it's from it's old Jewish mm-hmm. wisdom. It's like a major thing. It was mm-hmm. written two thousand years ago, but it's well. it's crucial and it's true, right? Mm-hmm. You have to ask. So that's repair. Repair is about asking and not being bashful. Ask Me 3 is actually something that healthcare systems came up with, which is uh, something that doctors would have a button on their shirt and, and they would ask. And, and I, oh, this I can't remember by heart because they didn't make it up. Um, but it's about it's questions about the treatment or the condition that you're being offered. Oh, okay. And the terrific thing about it, about it is that the doctor actually prompts you to ask. So, right, we just said the bashful cannot learn. So, if the doctor says, ask me about A, B, and C, then you're more likely to ask. They're inviting it. Fascinating concept. I like that very much. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part that I created, I called it ask about what matters because I think we can ask a lot of questions and we have to get to the gist. So, I also created three questions, not more, because our minds are lazy and because we get confused. Really, you know, and when you're sitting in the doctor's office, maybe you're in pain, 
Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you have been in pain for a while. You've been waiting for this doctor's visit for, what, days, weeks, months? You know, you, you found parking, you came, you're tired, you're hungry, you've been waiting for a while. Three questions. You can deal with that. So ask about what matters. The first question is, what are the risks? You're being offered something. What are the risks? Right off the bat. Then you ask about the benefits. What are the benefits? But you start with what are the risks? Because otherwise, we just fall in love with what we're offered. And you mentioned the confirmation bias. So when we hear about something, we tend to think about it and embrace it. And if we first hear about the risks, then we are likely to be more cautious. So what are the risks? What are the benefits? And the third one that I'm particularly proud of is what are the alternatives? And that's great because you don't want to give the doctor sass. You mm. don't want to appear like you're uh, not trusting the doctor. But it is your body and your life does depend on it. And your vision depends on it. And your lung depends on it. Your fertility depends on it. What are the alternatives? And, you know, I wrote about my visit to the garage, yeah. the auto repair shop, where I asked, is there an alternative? What are the alternatives? So the guys there didn't offer the alternative initially, mm-hmm. but when I asked, they didn't want to lie. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's, I want to say there's a fine line. It's not even a fine line. There's a line between withholding information or, you know, not telling the patient about something that you're less likely to do or you're not as uh, familiar with. Yeah, you're not as skilled and, in it or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just flat out lying. So when you ask what are the alternatives, you are much more likely to hear what those are, and then you can decide. And you so can- ask the benefits, ask the risks, and ask the alternatives. I think that's wonderful. Absolutely. It's, it's educational. It tells people you can ask about the alternative. That's fine. You make another point. You know, I grew up the daughter of a funeral director, so we death has just kind of always been around for me. You know, yeah. we, we wouldn't necessarily sit around and talk about dying at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. But, you know, dad would say someone died and we, it was just a reality we had. Mm-hmm. And you talk about that the importance of talking about death, that people put it off. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to assume that something's not going to work or somebody's not going to get better, but it is a reality. I mean, again, the title of your book, you know, <laughs> that it's, it's your life may depend on it. So what, what do you think are, are the, are there some movements or some, is the profession or is the medical community moving away from that, moving toward that. Certainly with palliative care and hospice, one would think that we're moving toward that. But what what is your take on that? So what I saw is that people don't like to talk about death. And by people, I mean doctors who feel that by talking about death, they might be disappointing their patients or just not offering them hope. Um, Patients who don't want to distress their their loved ones or their physicians and loved ones who don't want to distress the patients. The result is that there's a lot of loneliness and a lot of a lot of things are left un, unsaid. People cannot necessarily prepare for their deaths. Um, and uh, there's a lot of treatment that occurs because people don't express their wishes. So how do we know that? So there was a study, it was a really cool study, it was done in Ontario, 
in Canada where they looked at six uh, nursing homes. So three just lived their lives as usual, and another three had the opportunity to talk about advanced directives. So they had an evening where they invited all the residents and their caregivers or their proxies if the residents couldn't make decisions anymore, and they explained about advanced directives. And then they also provided the services of a social worker who sat with everyone and helped them fill out the advanced directive forms. Okay. That, which are fairly complicated, if I uh, if I should out, say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in the three nursing homes that had no intervention and no one came by, there wasn't a talk about advanced directive evening, few people filled out an advanced directive. In the nursing homes where there was such an evening, some people never showed up to the evening. Mm. That's fine. It's their choice. It is their life, right? And they can choose as they want. So some never showed up. Others said, well, I don't care about this advanced directive. I don't want to do it. But a lot of the of the residents did fill them out. And when they filled those out, they said, I, I don't want to be resuscitated. I don't want to be intubated. I don't want to be tube fed. I just don't want all of this at all. I'm not interested. Even if I could go back to living independently afterwards, I, I Cross me out. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested. I don't want to. And they said that in their sound mind. So there was a massive difference when you encouraged people to talk and think if they wanted the choices they made and the choices that were made otherwise, sort of by default, people just saying, well, you know, I don't know. I never heard of advanced directives. I don't know. I don't want to talk about that with my kids. The kids certainly don't want to talk about that with their parents. I, I did, actually. Um, but my mom is, is amazing. She's the most astute person I ever met. And, and that's easy because she knows I have her best interests at heart. And, you know, that's a, it's never easy, but it was as easy as it could be. So you see that when people can and are encouraged to and are helped in speaking about death, they do. They express their wishes. What I propose to do is something that sounds a little bit crazy, but that's fine. I call it talk about death Mm -hmm. to Tad. And I suggest that we do it just routinely. It's not like, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to die. Let's talk about death or mom. Let's talk about death because, you know, I've had enough of you. It's let's speak about death around milestone birthdays. And you know that, you know, when someone turns 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, it's like it's a big number. And you start thinking about life and where have I gotten so far and where am I going? And when you turn 41 or 51 or 61 or 71, it's a lot less interesting. So around these milestone birthdays, we take stock of our lives. We think about them. Sure we do. Sure they're do. pregnant with meaning. So let's use that. Let's The day before the party, let's talk about death with our loved ones. Let's talk about our preferences. What do we want to happen? What sort of care do we want? Hopefully, we'll never get there. We'll die in our sleep, happy and healthy when we're 120 years old. But maybe not, right? And if we have spoken about that, we help ourselves and we help our loved ones. Sure. Well, in the funeral industry, that's, you know, the pre-planning and everything has been going on for years. And then, of course, as I said, the palliative care and hospice care been growing as far as its availability to people and them trying to understand what exactly the difference between those two are and what mm-hmm. hailed in those two things. And I think that's a, a fascinating, I've, I've long been a proponent of hospice. I just think it's relieving for the patient. It's relieving for the family. It's, it's honoring 
what's going to happen and yet helps it happen as I understand it uh, far, far more comfortably. So yes, I'm a great advocate for that. Can I say something about sure. that? Of course you can. <laughs> so I wrote a book about decision making. Ah. And a good question there is, so what's the right decision? And and you talked about hospice care and palliative care. And we can ask, what's the right decision? What should people choose? I think the right decision is the one that is right for them. Exactly. That they thought about and fits their values and fits their preferences. And actually talking about death and palliative care and hospice helps helps us as people, helps us as caregivers get to the place where the decisions are aligned with our wants, with our preferences. And someone can with say- With the way we've lived our lives. Exactly. And someone can say, I want to fight. And, and I respect that. But I think it also has to be fed by real information. So this treatment that someone is getting, is it really helping them? Is it not helping them at all, but they're going through with it because they want to show their family that they're fighting till the end? Would they do that if they knew that there's an alternative? Would they do that if they knew that they're suffering in vain? You know, these are very, very big questions. Um, and the only way to approach them is a with a lot of respect, but also with really giving people the opportunity to be active participants in these decisions. So let me ask you something just kind of to wrap up a little bit. How has your work affected you as a person when you first began thinking, okay, I'm going to study about these medical decisions and I'm going to dedicate my life to that and then writing the books that you have? How how has that changed you? How has that, what has continued to spark your passion for it? What has become maybe a little less enjoyable or just, you know, can you talk about you a little bit? Of course, and thank you for asking. Um, you you give me too much credit. <laughs> um, I, I did not set out deciding that I would dedicate my life to this. It snuck up on me. Mm. It was an area that I found interesting. I decided to study it. Um, it, grew, it, it. It sort of hijacked me and my interests, and I felt more and more engrossed in it. I started out by looking at how people understood medical information. And in a way, something that happened to me was that I got disillusioned because I said, well, a lot of people have studied this and we know what some solutions might be and they're not really being implemented. And you could go either way from here. You could either say, well, you know, okay, been there, done that. You, you can write more papers. Why not? It comes fairly easily to you. You wrote more than 60 academic papers. Cool. Just keep on writing and, and why not? Um, you're not going to change anything anyway. Or, and that's, I, I discovered that I'm an activist. That I want to make a difference. I want to change things. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to read it. I wanted systems to change. That's a big thing to want. Is it going to happen maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after tomorrow? I don't know, but I wanted to put my best effort into that. That's where it changed me. It changed me into understanding that this goes way beyond you and me as patients and our doctors. It goes way, way deeper. But that doesn't mean I can't fight to try and change it. I should. That's that's where I am. Maybe you're planting seeds. Maybe you're making real change in the present. You don't know, but it's it's a worthy, worthy effort. Thank you. You're welcome. 
The name of Talia's book is Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. And let me see, it's on sale everywhere, I'm sure. It Uh, most certainly is. uh, Daniel Kahneman, is that how you say his last name? Mm -hmm. People who expect to stay healthy forever need not read this wonderful book. The rest of us should. With a fine combination of humor, compassion, vast knowledge, Talia Marone-Schatz offers clear and useful guidance for the hardest decisions of life. And I I want to state that again. I found the book very readable. I was a little, uh, oh, am I going to have to plow through this book? And that's not, I mean, you talk a lot about sandwiches and and that kind of thing. It makes it a great read and you have a great sense of humor. So I so appreciate you being on self-work and I know my listeners will greatly benefit from our discussion. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks so much to Talia. I'm sure you heard as I did her full engagement in trying to gently challenge the industry and patients themselves so that good decision-making is what happens, and that you will understand what you need to do for your physical and mental health and work collaboratively with your physician or medical professional. Thanks again so much to Talia, and thank you for being here. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can always leave me a message on SpeakPipe. The link will be here in your show notes, but it's also at my website, drmargaretrutherford.com. Thank you for being a part of self-work. Take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.